Yes, they will. For those of you that were not with us Wednesday or haven't heard the message since we have launched our series in Hebrews, and I've entitled the series Hebrews 2020. Don't try to look that up. I'm talking about the year. And the title, We See Jesus. Today, Piste Rahab He Porne. You can be ready in Hebrews anywhere. The Christology of Hebrews is majestic. Christology simply means the word about Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. We could even say that Hebrews, which we'll call for short the epistle to the Hebrews, that it is itself a majestic theology, a majestic Christology. It is the word of Christ as we see him crowned with glory and honor. In the introductory verses, it announces this. In these last days, God has spoken to us in a son whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he created the universe. His son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the stamp of his substance, who having made purification of sins, sat down at the right side of the majesty on high. The son, huio in the Greek, huio, who made purifications for sins is Yesu. Yesu. Huio, Yesu. And he is a priest, Hierus. There's a certain poetry in all of this. Huio, Yesu, Hierus. The son who made purification for sins is Jesus, who tasted death for every human being. He is a priest for the ages, who lives in the power of an incorruptible life, for he was crucified in weakness, Yet he lives by the power of God. He lives in the power of an incorruptible life to forever make intercession for us. We see Jesus is the declaration of Hebrews crowned with glory and honor. We see him most clearly when we go to him outside the camp. For he was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. The crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus 
lives and is seen outside the perceptivity of this evil age. He is seen by faith. John Chrysostom can be pronounced Chrysostom or Chrysostom, C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M. He lived in the 4th and early 5th century A.D. He was patriarch of Constantinople from A.D. 398 onward. He was eventually killed, we may say martyred, because of his oratory against corruption. His eloquence in homilies, which we also call sermons, resulted in the nickname Chrysostom, which in the Greek means golden mouth. If we go by the scriptures, I think it's better to have a silver tongue than a golden mouth, but that's a pretty good nickname. In his writings called Homilies 21.2, he said something that struck me pretty profoundly. He says, faith gives reality, and he uses that word which is used prominently in Hebrews, not often, but prominently, Hupa stasis. Hupa stasis. Hupostasis, if you want to put the accent in the proper place. Faith gives reality, that is, hypostasis, to objects of hope which seem to be unreal. Then he seems to tweak the definition of faith a little bit, and he says, or rather, does not give them reality, hypostasis or hypostasis, but is their very essence. Here's a man who understood the Alexandrian Greek that Hebrews was written in. Let me say this again. Faith gives reality to objects of hope which seem to be unreal, or rather does not give them reality, but is their very essence. Faith is the very essence of those hoped for things. We could say that it's the essence of a hoped for future. When Jesus was incarnated, he came into this world. When he was resurrected, he entered into the next. Our hope is in the future reality, which is already present in Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. For when we see him crowned with glory and honor, we discern God's design for all of humanity. Now, in this assessment of the meaning of faith, well, let's just say if it's true, and if we take Hebrews 11.1 1 seriously, it is true. Faith is the substance, hypostasis, of things hoped for. It's the documentation of unseen things also, but we'll just stick with Hebrews 11.1. 1. If this is true, and it is, if we take Hebrews 11.1 1 seriously, then to withdraw from faith or to otherwise reject faith 
is to draw back from the very essence of the objects of our hope. It is to depart and then stand aloof. To the living God with an evil heart of unbelief. Faith is the hypostasis, hypostasis of things hoped for. It is the very substance or reality of those hoped for things. To have faith is to have not only the subjective assurance of a hoped for future. It is to have that future as an object reality, an objective reality in the present. It is to have the future in the present. Where Jesus entered into the future aeon when he was risen from the dead, when he passed through the heavens. I said before, I'll say it again. I'm not going to quote or cite where I'm getting these scriptures. I'm simply going to speak the scriptures and leave it up to you to see where they're found. That's only not only in my speaking, but in my writing. I'll have very few references except to key references. It's time that you have become teachers now. It's time that you've become teachers. It's time that you will have been equipped well to explain the word of truth to someone without hope. To have faith is to have in some substantial measure the operation of the dynamics that are going to be universally in play when the age to come will have fully come. It is to have and to hold Christ, our hope, who is our hope. So if John Goldenmouth is right, then there's a good reason to believe that he is right. Then faith is the very essence of the hoped for objects all of which are summed up in Jesus. Because of that, our faith is our present salvation or the power of our future salvation demonstrated in some meaningful measure in the present. My righteous one will live by faith, prominent in Romans, also prominent in Hebrews, in one of the key paranetic passages. Paranasis, very important in Hebrews. Paranasis. It's otherwise known as exhortation. Hortatory passages. Or better, Hebrews is cohortatory. Hortatory says, do this. Cohortatory says, let's do this. Hebrews is a pastoral writing. Some have called it a sermon. I think it's kind of a sermon or a homily within a letter, within an epistle. 
I'm going to put some theories forth to you, not dogmatically, but I think that there's some conjecture about Hebrews that's very profitable. Sometimes speculation can be empty and vain. Sometimes it can be profitable because it forces us to look to the scriptures. There's no book in the New Testament more with more uncertainty among scholars about who wrote it, when it was written, to whom it was written, and where they were. So when I give theories about this, and there are many, when I give my own, it's not going to be dogmatically stated, but I think it's going to be profitable, and I think you'll see why. My righteous one will live by faith does not have so much a Christological interpretation in Hebrews. Rather, it applies to the recipients of Hebrews surviving by their faith an impending catastrophe, a prophetic historical catastrophe. And this is what is important today and what I want to introduce within Hebrews. There is a great lacuna, L-A-C-U-N-A. That simply means a gap, space, an empty space. There's a great lacuna in biblical scholarship and interpretation of the New Testament. And it's filled in by what I call the A.D. 70 trajectory. The A.D. 70 trajectory has been misinterpreted, misread, given too much emphasis, but in many cases not enough. The A.D. 70 trajectory is what I call it. Or we could call it a, an arc of coherence, something that stays true throughout all the New Testament and points to an occurrence the most important occurrence, which all the arc of the Old Testament points to, is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is also an arc of coherence in the New Testament. But from there it goes, so that's A.D. 30, the best preterism. Then there is an A.D. 30 or A.D. 70 trajectory or an arc of coherence. You can trace it not just in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, John 8, other passages, but it's throughout the whole New Testament. It's a prophetic slash historical trajectory. And it isn't everything because there's also a trajectory to the eternal state future which again can be experienced in some measure in the present by faith. This AD 70 trajectory is a prophetic arc of coherence in the synoptic gospels, in John's gospel, in Revelation. We've seen it operative there, John's apocalypse. And I believe that it's also important in Hebrews, more important than has been assumed. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, for example, where Jesus speaks of 
where a dead body is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered together. He's not speaking of something future to us, but of the dead bodies of rebels strewn across the fields of Judea, around which there will always be assembled the eagle standards of the Roman legions, which has a double entendre. As vultures gather around a carcass, so the golden eagle standards of the Roman legions would be there wherever there was a dead body of a Jewish rebel in A.D. 66 through 70. So we have this prophetic trajectory. Again, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke chapter 21. And in fact, cosmic apocalyptic language, like the end of the universe, the stars falling from the sky, the sun darkened, the moon, etc., turns to blood. Might see a little of that tonight in the snow moon, who knows, but cosmic apocalyptic language is deployed by Jesus not to signal the end of the world, not to predict the dissolution of the universe or judgment to an eternal hell. But to signal the fiery judgment of Jerusalem and the total destruction of its vaunted temple in A.D. 70, all of which signals the astonishingly significant breaking in of a new aeon an age that initially broke into history in A.D. 30. Apocalyptic, as we call it, language itself, in which we have the idiom of universal or cosmic catastrophe. Interpretation of those things is destroyed by a lifeless literalism. Apocalyptic language uses, for example, the idiom of universal or cosmic catastrophe. Jesus deployed it himself as an apocalyptic-style prophet in the days of his flesh to denote momentous, prophetic, historical disasters leading to new beginnings. This kind of language originated with Jewish apocalyptic genre, way and style of writing, going back to the Old Testament. It was often employed by Jesus, by Paul, by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and also, I will argue, by the anonymous writer of Hebrews. In any case, the prophetic A.D. 70 trajectory is a prevalent arc of coherence in the New Testament. This trajectory fills in a wide lacuna in ancient and modern interpretation of the New Testament scriptures. And I think it presents a formidable challenge to interpretations that rest on a lifeless literalism. N.T. Wright wrote in the introduction to Ben Meyer's book, which I think is a very significant book called The Aims of Jesus, I read several years ago, but in the introduction to Ben Meyer's book, 
N.T. Wright wrote this, that Meyer never explores the way in which Jesus, which means talk about the coming of the Son of Man, must have related to the immediately future public and politically charged events of the destruction of Jerusalem, and particularly the temple. So Wright, who commended Meyer's book, also said at the same time, he, if he had read this again, he would have seen that again. Now, let me just say what he said. I'll read what Wright said. Meyer, quote, never explores the way in which Jesus' talk about the coming of the Son of Man must have related to the immediately future public and politically charged events of the destruction of Jerusalem and particularly the temple. Wright went on and observed that, quote, If Meyer had worked through the second temple material, yet once more, he might have come to see that Jesus' prophecies of an imminent future had more to do with what we know as the events of A.D. 70 and less with the parousia, which we know the second coming, as traditionally conceived. Robert Duran, Robert M. Duran, expresses his opinion about Wright in one of the most notable books I read about the Trinity in History, Volume 2. Duran writes this. He says, in my view, this connection is one of Wright's most important contributions. Jesus is not talking about the end of the space-time universe but the end of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. The lacuna is being filled in. Andrew Goddard also, in his admirable chapter on universal salvation in Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L, who lived from 1912 to 1994, This article entitled, The Totality of Condemnation Fell on Christ, which is chapter 14 of All Shall Be Well. He also commented on N.T. Wright, quote, in relation to the New Testament theology, he read apocalyptic end-of-the-world language in terms of the significance of historical events, so that, for example, much of Jesus' teaching traditionally understood to refer to hell may refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The gap is being filled. And I was surprised because even so-called universalists still have that gap. They They can't fill it in. They don't fill it in. It's beginning to fill in now. Now, I would agree that Wright indeed helped popularize this insight. I've read thousands upon thousands of pages of Wright, including all of his series, including Jesus and the victory of God, where he brings this up. And I would agree that Wright did help popularize this insight. But if you remember Wright, years ago, I would also assert that others, including John Bray, which we read, Matthew 24, fulfilled, and Kenneth Gentry, have also taught this view. Others have taught this view. In any case, the A.D. 70 arc is of great importance 
for the interpretation and the resultant understanding of the New Testament in its totality, and for the interpretation and understanding in particular of many difficult portions of Scripture, which seem to suggest the threat of eternal damnation. There's a couple of those in Hebrews. And it's not my goal to take the sting out of them of passages, which would be to dishonor the scriptures. Now, my point, or let's just say today is my theory. Now, don't take the theory that I have dogmatically with dogmatic certainty, but I think the theory is profitable. And I'll show you that it is no matter who wrote it to whom, when, and who received it and where. There is a lot of stuff about this. I'm reading three commentaries now. Just got a fourth one yesterday. And I'll read them all as I go along. My theory is that this same prophetic trajectory also pertains in Hebrews or to Hebrews. There's an extraordinary lack of certainty among scholars and students about the identity of the author and of the recipients of the so-called epistle to the Hebrews. You read cases where it's got to be Paul, and then the case falls apart. You read cases where it has to be Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures, who came from Alexandria, who was familiar with the kind of Greek that Hebrews wrote. Or it could be Barnabas, who was from a priestly family. It could be Priscilla, some people said, who, in fact, brought Apollos into a more accurate knowledge of the way of God. But it you find out that it couldn't be Priscilla because of a masculine pronoun or a masculine participle used in Hebrews 11.32 where the writer speaks as a masculine person. And so I almost think God keeps it a secret for several reasons. Among the theories is the reasonable hypothesis, and I'm going to give the truth a wide berth here. Give it a wide berth, because it can fit in here somewhere. Among the theories is the reasonable hypothesis that it was written sometime between 60 and 100 A.D. Some people put it later. And I want you to see that the theory I'm proposing could work even if it were written late in that, that dating period. But to me, at least, it seems that it could have been written to a predominantly Jewish Christian group. Though that's not an absolute necessity either to make sure. People say dogmatic things and then they have to back up a little bit later on about these guesses. But it's my, it's plausible, I think to posit the possibility that they were Christians familiar with the Old Testament Scripture. In fact, they were Christians familiar with the Old Testament Scripture, the Torah, the Psalms, the writings, the prophets, as you should be. The writer doesn't say in Psalm 110. He says, it's written, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. They're supposed to know where it is. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He doesn't say Psalm 2-7 in parentheses. He thinks maybe his audience know where that is. 
as I assume you you should know or can find it readily. Sometimes even says, somewhere it says, somebody said. That's kind of like the whole thing of Hebrews. Somewhere somebody said, somebody wrote, somebody preached this. If you can read it in an hour, that's how long the sermon took, if it's a sermon. But the density of it will take us a couple of years, I think, to get through. The prophets, the writings, the Psalms, the Torah, all of which are quoted or alluded to in Hebrews. But this would also be true of Jews who came to Christ, as well as Gentiles who were first proselytes to Judaism and who subsequently came to Christ. It could also be true of so-called God-fearers who familiarized themselves with Yahweh, the God of Israel. We're going to talk about Rahab in a moment. Who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Who had faith in Christ kindled in them by the spirit of grace. Even Alexander the Great had great respect for Israel's God, for Yahweh. Some even say he was fascinated by prophetic words about him in Daniel. It could also be true of Gentiles who had come to Christ decades earlier and who had since been thoroughly taught the Old Testament scriptures. So you can't dogmatically say it has to be Jewish Christians. Some scholars have put forward that this epistle was written to Jewish Christians in Rome. That's probably the most popular theory now. Who had suffered under the Claudian expulsion in AD 70. Jews and Christians many times were expelled from Rome's districts. Some have even suggested that it was written to a specific house church of predominantly Jewish believers in Rome. A house church. We've studied those in Romans. So many early teachers assume Paul to be the author. Others have made fairly compelling cases for Barnabas, Apollos, or Luke. And I mentioned before Priscilla, the wife of Achilla, friend of Paul, has been suggested. You start reading as it stacks up. She was one who schooled the Alexandrian Greek preacher Apollos in the way of God more accurately. She and Achilla hosted a home church in Rome. They may have themselves been expelled from Rome in A.D. 49 by Claudius' decree and then returned. But then all of a sudden Priscilla seems disqualified as a candidate for the authorship of Hebrews by the author's present middle participial accusative masculine singular form of the verb diageomai. And he says, what more can I say? Nevertheless, all of this is useful conjecture, useful conjecture, in my view, because it forces us to think and to look to the scriptures. I scoured them in my mind as I thought of each of these theories. Now, it's important to give the truth a wide berth. In other words, let's have it, let's let it pass through a wide entrance here. As to who wrote Hebrews, who initially received it, and where and when. Let me propose a theory that I'm not going to press dogmatically, but listen carefully to it. I will 
support this with an internal argument from Hebrews itself, as well as in the wider text of Scripture. It has to do with the faith of someone we considered in increment one of this study, Hebrews. Her name is Rahab, Rahab. She's called Heporne, the prostitute. Now, you'd think Abraham would be the main guy spoken of in Hebrews 11, where the so-called faith heroes are spoken of. Abraham, the patriarch. And he is significantly featured there, as is Sarah. Or you'd think that Moses, who was called not only a prophet, but a priest. And it's extremely significant leader of Israel would be at the climactic phase of Hebrews 11. Moses, the prophet, Abraham, the patriarch, significantly featured true, but Rahab, the prostitute gets top billing. After her, the writer says, and what more can I say? And then it goes downhill and he talks about others if I could mention Jephthah, if I could mention this person, that person, the martyrs of the Maccabees, etc. But there was a peak hit with Rahab. Not just with Rahab, but with Piste, the faith, Piste Rahab He Porne. What a title for a message. I'm doing this for our Pentecostal friends so that they'll think I have the gift of tongues. I'll start the message today, I started it with Rahab, or Piste, Rahab, Eporne. Someone will say, I hear the word porn in there somewhere. Yeah, it's in the Bible. Rahab the prostitute. Now, my theory has to do with then the faith of Rahab. The seed for this theory was planted as I read and then reread years later. The very compelling paper of Carl Mosser, M-O-S-S-E-R, in the Epistle to the Hebrews in Christian Theology, entitled Rahab Outside the Camp. Rahab Outside the Camp. And by saying this, I don't say that Mr. Mosser subscribes to my theory only that the idea came to me while reading this insightful chapter. Years ago, then it's marinated and been insulating in my soul. In brief, Rahab and her family survived the utter demolition of the city of Jericho because by faith, and you can look at Hebrews 11.31 if you want for this, In lenses, years ago, I broke into Revelation at chapter 11. Well, I'm kind of breaking into Hebrews at chapter 11, too. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. Piste, Rahab, Heporne. Explicitly calls her by her profession or former profession. By faith, Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed. With the disbelieving, having welcomed Joshua's spies, we know it's Joshua's spies, with peace. Joshua sent in a recon group, 
to spy out the city. And the authorities were looking for them. They hid in Rahab's house. Now, why they picked her house, never mind. But they picked her house to go to. According to Joshua chapter 6, which figures prominently here, Rahab hid the men whom Joshua had sent to reconnoiter the city before its destruction, which God had devoted to destruction. As a reward for her kindness, the spies told her to hang a scarlet rope from her window. And I think this ultimately speaks of the blood groove of the blood of the lamb that we find throughout the scriptures, a symbol of it, to hang a scarlet rope from her window as a signal to the conquering army that she and her house must be spared in the imminent total disaster of the city. After Jericho's utter obliteration and the merciless killing of everyone in there, which is really merciful, Rahab and her parents and her brothers and all that she owned were collected and taken to a place outside the encampment of Israel. This has more significance than we can muster up today than I can speak of. But just for now, I'm going to skim on some of the High points. After profiling Rahab in her faith, the author says, and what more can I say? In 1132a, before he goes on to give honorable mention to other presbyteroi or elders who obtained a good report through their faith, this question puts a sharp point on what the writer is implying by putting Rahab at the climax of this list of commended faith heroes. She escaped the destruction of a city that had come under the curse of God for its rampant pandemic idolatry, which was infectious and would have spread to all the society of the earth. She escaped the destruction of a city. Not only did she escape the destruction of a city through her faith, the just shall live by faith, the just shall survive this by their faith. She was taken to a place outside the camp of Israel. That campment of Israel was also going to be destroyed. That whole generation fell in the wilderness. The ark would be taken by Joshua and Caleb and a few survivors and go into the promised land with another generation. She was outside the camp. The whole of Hebrews is a beckoning of the readers to go to Christ outside the camp. If you're going to see him crowned with glory and honor, you're not going to see him inside the camp. We go outside the camp to him, 
bearing his reproach. And they, he was reproached socially in the situation of the recipients of this epistle. He may not be reproached in a way that is dominant in our culture yet. Yet. So she not only escaped the destruction of a city that had come under God's judgment. She was also taken outside the camp of Israel. Rahab's faith in the God of Israel was the very essence of the object of her faith of future rescue. She believed in the God of Israel, Yahweh. Her faith was in a future rescue, which became present to her. Her faith was realized in her rescue from utter destruction of idolatrous Jericho. And it will yet be realized in the future bodily resurrection when all things will be savingly summed up in Yeshua, Yahweh, Yeshua. So I would posit here or put forward that the sermon in an epistle that we call Hebrews either was written to Christian Jews in Judea or precisely in Jerusalem, or it is a letter that is presented as that to show the onset and the break-in of a new epoch. Now, let's posit that this sermon in an epistle, which I call Hebrews, may well have been written to Christian Jews in Judea, or Jewish Christians, however you want to say it, or more precisely in Jerusalem itself, in the 60s A.D., I like what the writer says. Here, we have no continuing city. Old Jerusalem of the second temple wasn't going to last. A second death was coming. The first was 586 B.C. The second and final death, A.D. 70. I would posit then, or put forward, let's consider that it may well have been written to Christian Jews in Jerusalem itself, in the 60s A.D., when the destruction of idolatrous and apostate Jerusalem, which, just like Jericho, had come under God's curse, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. All of the judgment all of the bloodshed, all of the responsibility for the bloodlust of the death of the righteous from Abel to the death of Zechariah, whom you slew and murdered between the temple and the altar, will come upon you. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those whom God sends to you, Now your house is left to you desolate. Jerusalem, you've become like Jericho. You've become like Egypt. You've become like Sodom. For they crucified our Lord in Sodom and Egypt, says Revelation 11.8. It was under God's curse. Read Hebrews 6.8. And who is 
whose end or whose termination point is to be burned and whose destruction was imminent. Sounds a little bit to me like Revelation 18. Come out of her, my people. Do not participate in her sin or her plagues. She's become like Egypt. Come out. You're inside the camp. You're inside the city. Jesus was led outside the gate of Jerusalem to fulfill the fact that the sacrificial animals of the old order were taken outside the camp of Israel and burned. Let us go out to him. Outside the gate, outside the camp. And bear his reproach. Let's do a creative archaism. And say, let's say Moses was a Christian. What did he do? He left the pleasures of Egypt. The sinfulness of Egypt. Where he would have been lauded as a god. Because he chose a greater wealth which was to endure the reproach of Christ. For he looked forward and he saw a reward. And he endured seeing him who is invisible, seeing with the eye of faith him who is invisible to all other forms of perceptivity in this world. We see Jesus we endure. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We consider him. We carry on. For we have not yet shed blood in our resistance of sin. Now, Rahab then connotes the call issued in Hebrews by a voice from heaven. Hebrews 12.25. Oh, my old habits are returning. To go to Christ outside the camp bearing his reproach. Bad habit, but Hebrews 11.13.11.13.13. That is to identify with and to continue their confession of the crucified and risen Savior. The strong pull, and oh, there's one today. The strong pull, which I compare today to a riptide, was to abandon their confession of Christ under the pressure of disfranchisement, social ostracism, even imprisonment for identifying with the faithful communicators of the word of Christ. Say nothing about Christ himself with the communicators of them, of Christ. And for the acknowledgement of their faith, which involved a high Christology indeed. The communicators were under fire. And I'm sure people said, well, I stopped going to hear him preach during that time, you see. 
failing to recognize that they weren't withdrawing from a messenger, but the word of Christ itself. Flunk the test. Rahab. connotes this call. This would certainly explain, I think, the application of Habakkuk 2.4 and Hebrews 10.38 as indicating that the just will indeed live by faith in the sense that they, like Rahab, by faith would survive the imminent destruction. If by faith they went outside the gate, outside of Judea's confines, into all the world where God wanted them to go in the first place, they would go outside to Christ bearing his reproach, outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the city, and they would have been the just Surviving and living by faith. If this was the call, then it's pretty interesting because there's no record of one Christian dying in the A.D. 70 destruction. So this would explain the application of Habakkuk 2.4 and Hebrews 10.38, indicating that the just will live by faith in the sense that they, like Rahab, by faith would survive the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, which had come to be just like Jericho, just like Sodom, just like Egypt, just like Babylon, the whore. What an irony. It just twists once it's driven in. The irony of the whore city, sir, being destroyed, and the whore Rahab being pulled out of the city to go outside the camp. No wonder Jesus said prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of the heavens long before you guys do, you Pharisees, Bible scholars, scribes, hypocrites, So if we blend the imagery, see, we have, I can, I can brag about something. We have a unique perspective on Hebrews. Many others do too. But ours comes from having already studied, rev the book for 500 hours, already studying Romans. You say, what's the difference between, what, 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 how does that play? Romans has at the heart of it a lamb in sacrifice. Revelation has at the heart of it a lamb sacrificed. Hebrews has at the heart of it He who offered himself without spot, God's lamb, to God through the eternal spirit, who appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. At the heart of Hebrews is the lamb. At the heart of John is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We have a commonality that we approach Hebrews with. So all our study wasn't in vain in the sense that it continues. The insights continue in Hebrews. Now, Listen carefully as I close. Not only would the faithful live by going to Jesus outside the camp, but those who retreat from their confession, which is the content of their confession, 
about Jesus Christ would draw back to destruction, a warning. Apparently it was heeded. A consequence far worse than mere disfranchisement, ostracism, mockery, or even imprisonment. Now, I very briefly posited this theory, and I'm going to talk about it in the future maybe a little bit more, but I'm not going to press it dogmatically. But even if this was written in 100, what if the writer was saying to them, this is what happened in 70? So why are you retreating? Now, it, and you know what it also applies to? 21st century, 2020. So I've briefly posited this theory, and I won't press it dogmatically. But it seems to me at least conceivable that this pastoral author has the intent of warning his readers against an imminent prophetic historical disaster in which warnings involving fire (laughs) suffice to convey. Every time you see these controversial passages like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, it ends in fire. Hebrews 10, 26, 27, fire. Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, our God is a consuming fire, fire. Now, we're going to end on a note of fire, but... It's in the light of such phenomenal prophetic historical catastrophe. We can also make sense then of such stern and fearful warning passages like those found in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, all of which involve fire. The entire tenor of the epistle seems to be an urgent beckoning to leave Jerusalem or for us to leave whatever camp holds us, keeps us from going on to perfection or on to spiritual maturity, which is an extremely urgent thing to do. People say, well, I believed in Christ, and it's, I, I like the option of going. There's not an option to go on to maturity. What are you talking about, option? It's a command. It's an urgent requirement that you go on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity. I'll break my promise again. Hebrews 6.1. So, the entire tenor beckons to leave that city, which is really a camp. For here, for here, says the author, for here, we have no continuing city. The myth of the continuing city. The myth of Rome being the eternal city. The myth of America being the eternal light on a hill. America is not a continuing city. As patriotic as I am and patriotic as you want to be, America is not an everlastingly continuing city. Rome wasn't. Jerusalem of the Second Temple wasn't. A city's coming that will be. It's called the New Jerusalem. 
And I saw no temple in it because the lamb was its temple. So an assortment of competing theories that interprets Hebrews 6. One says it's merely hypothetical. If it's merely hypothetical, then the author wasted his time. And biblical writers don't waste their time. On the contrary, other writers say that it entails a warning of eternal loss and a fiery eternal hell. And then a third comes in and says, oh, no, it's not that. We're eternally secure, so it just means loss of blessings. I just can't picture the writer saying, I'm warning you, you could have a loss of blessings. I can only picture a beta male saying that. And I think an alpha male wrote this. But what about if we looked at the whole thing in the light of the AD 70 prophetic trajectory? We in the 21st century have the advantage, listen carefully, we in the 21st century have the advantage of looking through the rear view mirror of history in which we may look back at prophetic imagery fulfilled as actual events. Now, some may say at this point, as many do, they call themselves preterists of various stripes. They, they tend to they adopt this trajectory, and then they say, Phew, that was then, and that was them. That was then, and that was them. There's no warning for me here. But I beg to differ. Who knows what is in store in time and in history for those who drift and then draw back from a confession of faith in Jesus and who refuse the call to go to him outside of whatever camp holds them captive or holds us captive. To withdraw from faith, to go back to the beginning of the message, to withdraw from faith is to draw back from the very essence of the hoped-for realities that we've come to cherish. I can't even imagine a life that is empty of those hoped-for realities now. I can't do it. The, pre- the future's already invaded my present in such a way that I can't imagine if the future left my present. And I was left just with the guilt of the past and a fear of the future. I can't, it's, to me, it's unfathomable. It's like losing my salvation. <laughs> At least in time. Whew, that was for them. That was for then. You can hear the relief from all the preterist websites. That was for them. That was then. Consequences, however, of such a defection are disastrous, not only in time, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century, 
And in the future, in front of this little thing you might have forgotten about called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ will eventually issue in every tongue confessing. Meaning some will recover their confession suddenly. And praisefully singing. Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God. But the consequences of defection, it starts with a drift. Defection starts with a drift. You've drifted off course from grace, Paul said to the Galatians. It starts with a drift. But today the tide that we drift into is a rip tide. A rip tide, if you see it illustrated on a beach, pulls you out. The more you try to swim back, you can't swim back. You got to go with it until it turns right or left. You have to go with the rip till it goes right or left, then swim in. In other words, the recovery can be complicated. The walk of the prodigal can be a long walk home. And those who restore such a one must be spiritual. For we must all appear in front of the judicial bench of Christ, in order that each and every one will receive the good or bad consequences of what they have done while living in their bodies. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we who proclaim Christ, we who teach everyone we can and warn everyone we can so that we can present everyone we can as practically complete in Christ, We warn everyone because the quality of every person's workmanship will be plainly seen. It will be made eminently clear because it will be revealed by fire. Let's leave it there. Father, we thank you for this opportunity for Hebrews involves an exhortation something that this generation and the generation upcoming may not be prepared for because it takes us out of our safe spaces, our internal comfort zones. It urges us onward. It urges us forward. It says, let's not stay here. Let's move on to completion. May we take this, Father. May this congregation, who is ready for this in history, take it as men and women and not withdraw from it as children. May we be, in fact, those who are equipped to teach, those who are equipped to converse with others about these things, those who are equipped to give the wonderful gospel news of Jesus Christ and his saving kindness. And may most of all, Father, may we be obedient to let the word of Christ, as it's found in Hebrews, dwell in us richly, be the focal point of our conversation, our activity, our love. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.